Let's pray. Our gracious God, we, we thank you for the, your mercy and grace that you extend to us. And Father, the desire that we extend that mercy and grace to others. So Father, guide our thinking as we um, look to your word again, as we have the privilege of celebrating Holy Communion together. Amen. We do have the privilege of sharing communion together, and that is a, is a privilege. Uh, we're continuing in the series on final remarks, the final remarks of Peter, the great apostle. We've looked at uh, pursuit character, focusing on Jesus. He has a section now on the importance of being on guard. My concern for us as a church and any church, for, let's make it more broadly, the Church of Jesus Christ, that we stay true to the fundamental truths of the Bible and the Christian faith. This is in the heartbeat of the apostles as they write their final letters, their final words in the scriptures. When you abandon foundational truth, we no longer can be called a Christian church. And it usually starts with a drifting away, and all of a sudden it starts to snowball. In our life group, we're looking at a couple of the, uh, the cults, the modern-day cults, and Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, Charles Taze Russell, he, and he was in the 1800s where he started the movement. And one of the things he's, he came to the conclusion is that he felt that the, the judgment of the righteous was he just couldn't tolerate it. He just couldn't tolerate the idea of a loving God and the judgment of the righteous. And so he abandoned that as in his faith. And he was not educated formally in any way uh, in, the, in the church but then it started to snowball, and he denied the triune God. He denied the nature of Christ. He denied salvation by grace. And then many, many other things followed. And so what we see happening is what's, what starts can often snowball. There was a deep concern of all the apostles at the early days of the Christian church. They, failed, they, they uh, faced an onslaught, onslaught of false teachings in the church. And so their concern is reflected in the writings, all of them, Paul's writings, Peter, Jude, the brother of Jesus, and John, and they're very consistent in their concerns. They continue battling many fronts of heretical teachings in the church, and you study these early church heresies, you'll find that many of them are just like they are today, just in warmed-over form. The issues generally at stake were the nature of the triune God, nature of God, the nature of who is Christ, the whole central focus of what is salvation, and then often it became moral issues within culture. And the early church leaders were very strong, and they were very intense in their words and feelings for people who led people astray. And you can reflect on the letters of the apostles, and they're very, very strong in their words, and sometimes it takes you back. But they were deeply concerned, because wrong teaching hurts people deeply. Wrong teaching has an effect on people that God loves. One of the things that the church, um, in the early churches, they recited often was what's called the Apostles' Creed, which really was a Roman creed. We don't know that it came directly from the apostles. There was another writing called the Didache, which was a, a writing of church practices. How did they structure the church? And these are some of the earliest writings we have to give us cues as to what was important in the life of the early church. And I would like to recite the Apostles' Creed together this morning because it draws us together in our common faith. So let's recite the Apostles' Creed that will be up on the screen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. 
He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He descended into Hades. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From whence he come, judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. That is a fantastic creed. Just think of the powerful message that's given in that creed. If we hold to the truth of those creed, which when they wrote those creeds, they, they drew them from their understanding of the sacred word. And I think it's very important as a church, even though we're not creedal per se, that we realize how powerful those creeds are in our church life. So turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2 for just a few moments as we think about the subject of being on guard. You recall last time we looked at the central issue of focusing on Jesus. And at the end of chapter 2, he says, how are you going to know who Jesus is? Well, it's going to come from the written record of Scripture. And he puts out in the importance of Scripture that it's not given some private interpretation, but people were moved by God to write down the sacred word. And so the Holy Scriptures has to be central in the life of the church. It's from that that we unpack understandings like the creed that we just read together. These are Peter's words. Listen to Peter's words. There were false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, being, bring swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you by fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. Very strong words, very strong words, and rightfully so. He, he identifies the primary issues of what I call false guides, not just are we formal teachers. Anybody who leads people is, is guiding people. In fact, every one of us, in one sense, is a guide because we're leading people. After he gives those introductory verses, he goes into some history about people that went astray and God's warnings that's given to them, and there was severe judgment. First of all, the angels he identifies. There was a time in history where they were judged. There's a time in history when things went awry, even in the angelic world, and they were judged. We recall, he recalls in the chapter 2 here the flood. As a result of extreme moral decay and violence, it came down to one person who was left who exercised genuine faith. You see God's unbelievable patience before he exercises judgment. He identifies Sodom and Gomorrah, and that was destroyed for a variety of reasons. The book of Ezekiel identifies that they were extremely opulent and rich, and as a result, they were indifferent. They were indifferent towards the needs of the poor and needs of people. And also, that exploitation occurs sexually, as we see played out in the pages of Genesis of Sodom and Gomorrah. And God would have spared these two evil cities for just ten righteous people. If there were ten righteous people, you realize the patience of God, that he was willing to spare them for ten people. But he identifies these examples in history of people who have wandered away from the truth and the effects that it has and the judgment of God. But let's backtrack and look at these characteristics of false guides for just a few moments. 
These, these principles here are illustrated throughout the rest of the chapter. First one is they use deception. They use deception. People who are pursuing a course of, of guiding people in the wrong direction, they use deception. deception. They secretly introduce destructive false beliefs. They tend to be intentional and at times very calculated. These are often very appealing people with, with a lot of charisma. In the early church, these leaders who are deemed heretics were very, very compelling individuals. Truth somehow is mixed with falsehood and enough that people buy into it. What we need most in the Christian church is what I call discernment. We can understand the, the principles in the Bible, and we can understand the truths in the Bible, but the question is, how do we make them relevant, and how do we understand them in terms of making wise decisions where we can distinguish truth from falsehood? If anything, we need to teach each other is how to be discerning. And the best defense of that is to know the truth. You might want to know some things about some of the false teachings that are out there, but the most important thing is you understand the truth so well that you can see anything that's counterfeit, anything that's false. How does the truth, how does that teaching or whatever it is stack up against the sacred word? You see, truth does not hide in the shadows, but truth is up front. I mentioned before up in Bemidji when I was pastoring there, we had actually literal people from cults that came in and would literally come to pull people out of the church. They would come on Sunday mornings, and they could be anonymous, and they were literally trying to pull people out of the church into their cult, their cult groups. And there were people that left. Thank God that many of them trickled back over time. But you see, they use deception. It's not straightforward. The truth is straightforward. Secondly, they deny the fundamental truths of the Scripture. They deny fundamental truths. It says they denied the master who even bought them the one who had given his life for them, the fundamental message of the gospel, they're denying the very essence of Christianity, the truth about Christ. I think we have to realize that there's such exclusivity of the gospel, and there's nothing we can do about that. Jesus identifies him as he is the way, the truth, and the life. And he is the path by which people can reconnect with God. The exclusive path, the unique path of the gospel. It's a marvelous path. As you look in the book of Romans, as we're teaching on Wednesday night, you get to realize the uniqueness of, of our Christian faith because it recognizes that we can't do it. It recognizes that in no way possible any of us, by any human effort, can achieve a standing in a relationship with God. It comes only through Christ stepping in on our behalf, giving his life for us. He steps in so we don't have to be on the performance treadmill all the time, wondering and producing to see if we're acceptable to God. He says, you are my own. When you come to Christ, you are his own, and we can have that peace with God that's so powerful. But you'll find over time that universalism is very appealing, even in the context of church life. Somehow we believe that there's, that there's other ways, other paths, other avenues by which people can follow, and they'll find their way to God. There is a certain quality of faith that has to be exercised even if people don't have expressed knowledge of Christ. He lavishes, folks, his mercy and grace on us. And to have people who deny that very fundamental truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, just think of the implications of that in the life of the church. It's so important that we stay true to Christ. True to Christ. Also, they live destructive lifestyles. What you see is not what you get. They did not follow their practices. And often it's in their personal lifestyle. They promise freedom, but they enslave people. 
the Pharisees or false teachings usually come in the area of human sexuality, and you see that in the text. Over and over again, he describes it. This is borne out in chapter 2. You see, in clearing this passage, a departure from God's stated law and desire for us. It's one of the most difficult areas of living out our Christian faith. It seems so exclusive how God has described our human sexuality and the context by which we can express that. For many, it involves throwing off the bounds set by God for more freedom of sexual expression. Colin Campbell states, Freedom does not mean the absence of constraints or moral absolutes. Suppose a skydiver at 10,000 feet announces to the rest of the group, I'm not going to use a parachute this time. He wants freedom. The fact that the skydiver is constrained by a greater law, which is called gravity. But when the skydiver chooses the restraint of a parachute, she is free to enjoy exhilaration. God's moral laws act the same way. They restrain. They are absolutely necessary to enjoy exhilaration of real freedom. When I was growing up in the life of the church, the pressing issue was legalism. Legalism always adds precepts. It adds bounds often to, to, in, to, uh, to keep moral behavior within a group or within a community. Legalism always adds. It adds precepts from the, from the scriptures. And the writings of the early apost the early writings of the apostles were battling Jewish legalism. But that's not so much the issue today in the Christian church. The issue is license, freedom. And what freedom does and it, to license tends to diminish the stated rules. That was the Gentile context that they faced over and over again. And they addressed those in the latter books of the New Testament. You diminish God's precepts often leads to a dismissal or of their relevance in our lives or their importance. And you see the life's destructive lifestyles that these people lived that were supposed to be leaders of the church and lead the people in a proper direction. And what you see is not what you get. And so he says you've got to be on guard. You've got to be on guard. One of the tests of authenticity is that there's some consistency. Even though it's a journey, the Christian life, there's a consistency in one's lifestyle and as one, what one proclaims. Final one is they exploit others for greed and for gain. How many times have we seen Christian leaders, even today, that really the role and the core motivation is, is money? It's money for the ministry, but it's really money for them. It becomes a blight on many ministries, leaders these days. Many, many examples, I don't have to go into them, of people who maybe they started out with great intentions, but all of a sudden as they go, they realize that the benefits of ministry, it always tends to move itself towards exploitation. Everything has to be done their way. So grateful, and I can say this with great confidence, that the leaders I work with here are not those kind of people. They're not in it for exploitation. They're in it for service. But over time, people who are false, you'll see that all of them becomes about them and all of a sudden exploitation. At the end of the chapter 2, he warms people, lapsed people, and what that is is folks who are in worse conditions, who, having known righteousness of God, they turn away from the holy commandments of God that was delivered to them. And their state is far, far worse than if they had never even encountered Christ in the first place. Folks, each of us need to heed the warnings because we're all responsible for the integrity of the church. All of us. How are we doing? How are you doing individually? Are you involved in deception or are you a person that's, that's pursuing the truth up front? Are you denying some of the fundamentals, the very foundations 
of our Christian faith, particularly as it relates to the nature of God, Christ, and salvation? Are we espousing a contrary moral lifestyle that the Bible does not prescribe? And are we taking advantage of people for our own gain? If we are, we find ourselves in the camp of these ancient people that, that Peter identified. In his last words that he gives to his, his church, and a fledging church in many places, he gives these warnings because he so much desires them to follow Christ faithfully. Certainly is my desire for you here is that we follow faithfully. I love the words that were read in the book of Jude at the end there. That, that's the brother of Jesus who, who writes these words. and Just listen to them carefully. Listen to them carefully. Dear friends, he refers them to friends. And you see such commonality in the teachings at the, of Jude and Peter and Paul and, of course, the beloved Apostle John. Dear friends, remember the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold, the apostolic witness. They said to you in the last days there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires, and we see that all around us. Those who are people who divide you, who, who follow mere in instincts, they do not have the Spirit of Christ. But you, dear friends, by building yourself up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring to you the powerful and wonderful eternal life. But be merciful to those who are doubting. Be merciful to those who doubt. By the way, there's a good doubt and a bad doubt. There's a doubt that doubts the very fundamentals of our faith that can be destructive for us. But there's a doubt that says, I don't know and I want to know. That's a good thing. We encourage each other in that regard. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy, mixed with fear, hating even the clothes stained by corrupt flesh. He has something to say about sin. And he gives that wonderful doxology to keep, who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you in his presence. What a wonderful ending of that great book. So my encouragement is, is to be on guard. Be on guard. Don't let this place be a place that, that all of a sudden over time we find ourselves in a very, very different place than we ever dreamed we would be. And I pray for you and I will pray for you in the days ahead. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God, we thank you for the, even though they're hard words, Father, as these apostles pour out their heart and soul, as they're so concerned about the church as they leave the scene, Father, so concerned that, that truth is exalted and Christ is lifted up, and they're following him faithfully in all they do. And Father, we ask in the days ahead as we navigate this place, that the words of these great apostles will be burned in our hearts as we seek to be faithful in following you. Amen.